Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Having to look a, a, a wife in the eyes or a mom in the eyes and, you know, try to give them some kind of peace on why their son died. or why their husband died, you know? There's always the knowledge that you're gonna have to do that. And not only are you gonna have to do it once, you're gonna, you're gonna be responsible to some degree for that individual and their family for the rest of, the, of your life. From a leadership perspective, I, I, I kind of unpack it a couple of ways. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, that, that always weighs on you, right? At a personal level. That was my only problem with just like turning it loose is because if you wanna find a gunfight in Afghanistan or Iraq, you're gonna find a gunfight. I mean, these people are your friends too. Like you yeah. grew up with them, you know, and, and there's a deep, deep bond. And so keeping them alive, you know, first and foremost, and if there is going to be loss, you needs know, to be it, worth it, it needs to fucking matter. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. You know, asking any organization in D.C. to police itself. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> lost fucking cause. Yeah. Um, were all three of your deployments to Afghanistan uh, similar in terms of, because at the, I mean, by the time you went there, you were fairly senior, right? Yep. Um, so was were all three deployments from, from where you sat um, more of a leadership type of position? I mean, were you going out with the guys much or? Yep. Uh, the first deployment... Um, in, in, as you said, in every one of those, um, pretty senior guy in, in, in my career, I was, you know, I think I was like 15 years in for the first deployment I did, um, found myself working a lot at the, at, at, like at, at the operations level, um, launching, recovering multiple teams at a time, running the operation center on my first deployment, um, led a couple of missions as a task force commander with Afghan forces like in a maneuver but battalion plus mm-hmm. type maneuver which was uh pretty wild because um, it was it was several hundred afghans about 50 green berets a couple of howitzer pieces um you know actually <laughs> wild west it, it was and and it was um it was the first time uh in 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 history that that level of maneuver warfare with the ana had happened up in aruzgan province and 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 had the opportunity to be the mission commander for that one but the, the preponderance of my work, Mike, was it was it was command and control of teams that were going out multiple times, pushing them out, pulling them back, medevacs, fires. Yeah. And, you know, it gave me a perspective of the country um, 
and 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 how vast this mission was and what we were up against trying to do yeah. this thing. My last deployment was radically different in the sense that um, at that point I had already turned down uh, command and was was going to knock out one more deployment before I retired. And it was this mission called the Village Stability Mission or Village Stability Operations. And it was kind of a modern day Magnificent Seven of SF getting back to its roots and uh, living in local villages and helping those folks stand up on their own. And that was by far for me the, the most uh, rewarding deployment of all the ones that I did because it really allowed me to get back to my roots. I think it allowed the special ops community to get back into living in the communities and really going native yeah. uh, in a lot of ways. And, you know, it was a pretty effective program. Yeah. Uh, and I think had we done some version of that right after 9-11 and stayed with it for the long haul, plus building up the commandos and the Afghan special forces, I think it could have been a different long-term fit outcome. Yeah. Uh, but but that mission was, was radically different. I found myself traveling around the country um, – with a cultural advisor, just helping stand villages up, putting teams in them, dealing with the elders, and then going to the next village. And that was that was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to take a, a quick break. I, I do want to let you guys know um, the way that you can support the show is to support our sponsors. Uh, I know some people don't like to hear ads, but uh, that's how I do what I do for a living. So uh, any support you can show for our gracious sponsors is much appreciated. And again, it does uh, does support the show. So thank you. What are the two key components for canine success? That's effective training and proper nutrition. Fueled by Team Dog brings those two components to your family and best friend. The perfect nutritional balance that results in a higher mental acuity, energy, overall vitality, and even an improved appearance. Every product you will find in my company's store was born from the battlefield and not from the boardroom. Let my life's work help you become your dog's hero. It's fascinating to, to have you sitting here to interview because I've had a, a lot of uh, enlisted Green Berets that have been under commands. Maybe even some of them have been under your command. Um, and one of the questions that I ask pretty much all of them is that, you know, when you got into country, was there a, a definitive understanding for you, you know, not, not you but them, um, of why you were there and, and kind of what the overall objective was. And, and for a lot of them, it's no, not really, yeah. you know, and to me, I, I find that both surprising and, and disappointing. You know, it's one thing if a, an 0300 infantry Marine that's 19 yeah. doesn't get the big mish, you know, and doesn't, doesn't have a real grasp on, you know, why America is in Afghanistan. What, but I mean, to me, that's just basic fucking communication one one but especially for high level elite, tiered war fighters like understanding why we're here what we're trying to accomplish you know thirty thousand foot view and all the way down to the micro yeah. why wouldn't you want them to know that uh, uh so i'm curious you know one what your take is on that i mean not all of them some of them like right. yeah you know our leaders were fucking great about it and we knew exactly why we were there and what we were doing but a lot of them that wasn't the case i'm curious about the disparity and i'm also curious how you as a leader navigated uh, the, the risk mitigation, cause that's always a, a tough one that if I, you know, I've never been in your, in your shoes, I don't, I don't want to Monday morning quarterback it, but I can certainly imagine the, the, the kind of dichotomy that exists internally of trying to decide how, how much we're going to push it and, and how, how worth it is this amount of risk based on what we're trying to account. Like how, how do you fucking rationalize all that? Yeah, the, the dichotomy that you talked about, first of all, in, in like 
understanding the mission set at the tactical level. I, I think that actually went all the way up to the most senior levels. That was one of the things that I was able to do, um, you know, where like looking at the guests that you've had on here, I mean, just serious gunslingers and trigger yeah. pullers. And, you know, I will tell you, my experience was, was nowhere near to that degree. Um, those guys were in the mix far more than I was. What I found myself able to do was run the seams quite a bit. One minute I could be out in a village working with a couple of ODAs here. And then the next minute I'd be up in Kabul meeting with the Ministry of Water, you know, yeah. and talking about hot water tables and why they're not out. And in doing that, I got to get kind of a sense of, of where things were at various levels of war. And one of the things that, that fascinated me was if you took, I think at any command level, and you took like the top five officers and put them in five different rooms and asked them why they were there, they'd all tell you something different. Yeah. So I think there was an inconsistency. And really, if you go back and, and I talk about this in my book, Game Changers, like I, I don't think there was ever clarity of mission, even when it was given like at the, in, you know, at the, at the national command level. Yeah. I, I don't think it was clear. When you have one commander in chief saying, we're not nation building. Right. But then at the same time, you're, you're fucking yeah. nation building, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, so by the time it got down to the ODA SEAL platoon level, I mean, what was clear, at least early on, was that you had this big old thing called a Joint Special Operations Area, a JASOA. And there were no other troops around. And you had you and your boys and you could go to town. You yeah. could walk the enemy down and you could get after it. And they did. And there was, uh, I think, clarity in that regard. There were other teams who either culturally or just because it was their belief system thought much more by, with, and through. Like, we're going to build capacity here. We're going to work with the commandos. And so you just had this mix. You had this cultural, even within SF, it was a house divided yeah. on where we came down. Are we here? Are we here to walk the enemy down? Or are we here to build capacity with the commandos and the Afghan special forces so that they can do it? Um, and I don't know that we ever, as, a, as an entity, ever got fully clear on that because there were so many confusing signals and it was such a, an ambiguous environment. The closest I saw it in my time there, it was on the third rotation in 2010 when we were doing that bottom-up village stability mission. Um, and that included SEAL platoons, it included MARSOC, SF, but you were working with these indigenous tribes in these communities, and you had Afghan special forces there with you at your shoulder, also advising. And it was pretty clear, like it, and, and it was, and it was effective. I mean, it was really taking back a lot of ground. And honestly, it was the only time I ever saw us kind of in tune with how Afghanistan really works. Yeah, which is the villages and the communities run shit when you get off the pavement, yeah. the government doesn't have anything to do with it. Yeah. And so you saw these communities kind of reclaiming their autonomy and pushing the Taliban out on their own. Cause they didn't want them there. Yeah. They didn't want us there either. Yeah. You know, but, but there was a level of, of agency that started to emanate from that for about a year and a half. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, man, we pulled the rug on it, pulled our teams out and left these guys to fend for themselves and be hunted down for retribution. Yeah. Did, so yeah, did you, I guess for for where you were at too as a, as a fairly senior officer, did you get a sense of your higher ups pulling you in and being like, hey, here's the fucking deal? Like, did did or did you feel times that you were in the same boat as some of the sled dogs? I mean, I think all of us were a bit deluded, yeah. to be honest with you. I think we all told ourselves some shit about what was going on there at an officer level that 
that I know I, I need to take personal responsibility for for the rest of my life. For example, you know, thinking in any capacity that the Taliban were fractured and reporting that back, you know, that and, and we did like it was it was um, as organizations were coming back saying, yeah, they're we've almost got them. They're yeah. fractured and they weren't fucking fractured. They were they were there were more of them in the rural areas than when we started, you know, and, and I think that there was. Um, I don't know, man, I just I. I, I do you feel like you were lying to yourself or do you feel like you were just disillusioned? I think you just wanted to win. Yeah. You just wanted it. You, you just, you just wanted, you wanted it to count, you know? And, and, um, I, I think what, what for me was towards the end of my time was, was getting real honest and saying, look, man, this shit's going to take 50 to 75 years. Mm -hmm. You know, we've been doing FID in Columbia since the fifties, right? We've been doing FID in the Philippines forever. Um, we're going to have to do long-term remote area FID in this country with irregulars and regulars for the rest of our life. Yeah. And, and that's what it's going to be. Now, the question is, is that expenditure of a small amount, small footprint of specialized special operators over the long term worth the creation of antibodies to violent extremism in undergoverned areas? And, and I, think it, I think it is. So for Agreed. me, but we started too late. Like yeah. we, we early in the war, it was all about attrition walking them down. And I think we burned 10 years yeah. doing that. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I also agree that I, I think that it's worth it, especially when you look at where we're at now. Uh, not that I, I don't think anybody who, you know, has ever fired a fucking bullet in anger, no. you know, for the United, on behalf of the United States military in the last 20 years, wouldn't have predicted the, the nightmare monstrosity that took place. Um, yeah, you know, true. Having said that, you know, yeah, it's easy to, to say that now. Well, fuck, I mean, all of us were saying that beforehand. But I agree. I, I think that super small footprint is the key. I mean, for that matter, if you look at Afghanistan a month before we pulled out, there's a fucking 2,500 troops there. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's fucking nobody there, basically. Right. But, but the Taliban, what didn't they do? Well, they didn't fuck with us because they knew if they did, what would happen? Yeah. And then we went and, and completely erased all of it and fucked over the entire country in the process. We sure did. And I think that, you know, when you look at the origins, if you walk it back to 9-11 and you look at the fact that bin Laden and his cronies, they, we knew they were up to something. We tried that over the horizon shit. It didn't work. And we ended up sucking the, the, the worst terror attack in American history um, out of that very safe haven. Out, now, out of those ashes, we made the realization, hey, we did not have a good ground intelligence capability. And we did not have a sufficient partner force that we were working with that could have been an antibody to this thing, right? Yeah. And, and, and we had the Northern Alliance. I mean, Massoud was telling us, they're coming. They're going, he, he said it in France right before it happened. They're going to hit you. Yeah. And we wouldn't listen to the guy. You know? And then after it all happened, we saddle up, we go over there, we spend 20 years building a ground intelligence capability and a partner force in the Afghan Special Operations Forces in particular, that was damn good. Yeah. They were doing 95% of the fighting. Um, they lost as many as 70,000 in the overall ANA, KIA, 150,000 wounded. You know, I mean, they, they, they lost a lot. And, and the point is, we were building a capacity, I believe, that with a, a residual counterterror force in place, um, could have held the line for long-term foreign internal defense to keep building that capacity. And again... If you, if you look at it now, where we are, I just interviewed Masood's son, Ahmed Masood, who's the leader of the National Resistance Front. And, you know, he was telling me, he said, there are, in, by his count, 27 
violent extremists in Afghanistan right now, including ISIS-K and Al-Qaeda. Oh, actual entities. Actual entities operating with complete impunity on the very ANA bases in Helmand and Kandahar, you know, where we had our, our bases. They're, yeah. they're operating there. Osama bin Laden's son has been spotted back in the country. Zawahiri's son-in-law is back in the country. And you're like, okay, wonder why they're there, you know? And, and I believe that the dashboard is blinking red again in a pre-9-11 kind of way. We have no ground intel capability, and we have no partner force because we left them fucking behind. Like, we literally, we, we had a partner force that was so proficient, and we literally just left those guys, yeah. you know? And now they're over there. Um, and whatever comes here, whatever, I think it was the CENTCOM commander just the other day said yeah. six months from striking the yeah. U.S., um, we're going to find ourselves probably saddling our kids up this time yeah. on C-17s and going doing the same shit again. Yeah. And uh, billions of dollars of equipment and a lot of training also that now we're up against. Yeah, I mean, some of these guys have been co-opted. I mean, there's, there's accurate reporting that um, – the Iranians have actually co-opted some commandos by holding their families hostage in Iran. And those commandos are now fighting in Ukraine for the Russians yeah. or the Wagner group, uh, you know, a, yeah. a, against NATO forces, basically. Yeah. Um, if we could, uh, that second question, which is risk mitigation. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, it was great, great, uh, po great points. And, and I, I'm glad that you went into it. Um, to me, that's one thing that, that I hear a lot. Yeah. You know, you've got, such a, a disparity in experience from guy to guy, you know, yeah. some of it's luck, some of most of it's luck. Um, you know, but some guys have these wet dream deployments where, you know, their, their task unit commander or whoever was calling the shots was basically like, go fuck them up boys. I'll be in the jock. Let me know if you need anything, you know? And then there's other guys that just hamstring the fuck out of them. And then of course there's, you know, everything in between, but putting myself in, in that, in those shoes, I can see the difficulty in just being like, hey, you're here to do a job, go fucking do it. On the same token, it's like you've got these, you know, early 20s testosterone filled, for lack of a better term, fucking meatheads in some cases that want nothing more than to just dive headfirst into whatever the fuck, you know, hornet's nest that they can kick over. Yeah. You know, and, and will will bitch about, you know, not being able to do their job, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm curious, like from a, a commander's intent standpoint, how do you navigate that? Um, from a leadership perspective, I, I, I kind of unpack it a couple of ways. You know, f one is I, I can't help but start with like at a personal level is, you know, um, having to look a, a, a wife in the eyes or a mom in the eyes and, you know, try to give them some kind of peace on why their son died or why their husband died, you know? <clears throat> There's, there's always the knowledge that you're going to have to do that. And, and, and not only are you going to have to do it once, you're going you're gonna to be responsible to some degree for that individual and their family for the rest of, the, of your life. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that, that always weighs on you, right, at a personal level is because these, you know, I mean, these people are your friends too. Like you yeah. grew up with them, you know, and, and there's a deep, deep bond. And so keeping them alive, you know, first and foremost, um, and, and if there is going to be loss, you needs know, to be it, worth it, it needs to fucking matter. Yeah. Um, I can remember one situation where a very, very prominent politician who Green Beret got himself into a, an, into a jam. Um, and he was the mission that he was on, though, and they were really pinned down and they were gunning it up, man. But the mission they were on was to was to find a new airfield yeah. for their UAE partners. And it's like, bro, you are aborted. Like, get the fuck yeah. out of there. You know, I mean, it there, yeah. there was no utility in it. Yeah. 
Um, and, and so that was my only problem with just like turning it loose is because if you want to find a gunfight in Afghanistan or Iraq, you're going to find a gunfight, you know, but, but our special operations criteria, the way that special forces in particular, which is what I understand how they're supposed to deploy and employ their, their usage is really by with and through indigenous partners. It is to build capacity, you know? And so where I would typically assume more risk um, is when it involved building capacity with the commandos or a new unit or putting a unit into a position of influence that they didn't have before mm-hmm. or putting in a new capability with the HF radio that they haven't used before and taking some risk there, assuming some risk there uh, with um, with the Taliban massing on you, you know, yeah. taking. So for me, the way I always tried to look at it was, you know, w- w- what is the strategic outcome here? Mm-hmm. You know, if we're going to go in here and, and get after it and put our guys at risk and possibly some of them not come home or come home maimed. What are we doing that's different than a fucking infantry squad? Yeah. Or, or you know, or a direct action hit. Now, if it's DA, fine. Yeah. You know, if that's what you're there to do, but in most cases, that's not what we were there to do. We yeah. were, you know, DA was a was a mission, but the bulk of our work was foreign internal defense. It was to build capacity. Yeah. And so typically I would try to look at risk that way. Mm-hmm. And if I was gonna go out on the limb and assume risk, it was usually in that realm where there would be a, a lingering capacity as a result of it. Yeah. Is it uh, a fair assumption or, or fair to say that you could, you, you could kind of boil it down to one simple statement, which is if, if I'm having to explain to a loved one, why your son is, is now dead, it's because he did this. And because of that, we accomplished this and it's a big fucking deal. And if yeah. you can say yes to that, yeah. the why matters, yeah. the why needs to matter, yeah. not just the task. Yeah. I mean, to me, I, I think that's phenomenal to hear, and I, and I wish more officers kind of lived that way because it, it seems like some of them are so gun-shy like that they won't let their guys do any fucking thing because they don't want to have to say, you know, we lost this number of guys on my watch, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, then you've got, you know, some others that are just like, yep, yeah, fucking take the gloves off and go do whatever the fuck you want to do. And and uh, while I can appreciate the... Uh, the brazenness in that. And, and I think that there is something to be said for that. Um, I, I don't uh, say that mockingly. I, I, I truly, like if I had to pick one over the other, it's give me the guy with the gloves off and, and let us decide what's too fucking dicey or not, you know, because uh, we're the ones doing it. Like I'd rather have that scenario right. than, you know, somebody trying to shackle you back. But I also, as I get older, realize that, you know, when you're uh, prefrontal cortex isn't even fucking yeah. developed yet. I mean, that's the age I was when I was first in Iraq. You know, it's it's probably better to have a, a little senior guy that's looking at it from maybe a little bit different perspective that's uh, that's yeah. calling some of the shots. It just needs no, to be balanced. No, I, I agree. The other thing I tried to do too is I, I've always been just really blessed to have, um, you know, kind of sage NCOs at my shoulder who would advise me, you know, on, you know, from the ground level on, on, the approaches to take, you know, I always found that there was, there were very few situations where you couldn't reach out, you know, to a couple of senior non-commissioned officers and say, Hey, what do you guys think? Yeah. You know, how do you, how do you think we should play this? And you know, nine times out of 10, they're going to be spot on, man. They're going to tell you exactly how to play it. Yeah. And then, you know, this goes back to what my, my mentor Mark taught me, then you got to fucking take care of them. Yeah. You got to make sure they have the medevac. You got to make sure they have the operational fires. That the that the aerial resupply is going to be on time and all that shit that no one wants to do. Yeah. So that they have the absolute best chance of success because they just told you how to win it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, and a lot of that is 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 taking that counsel, 
giving them what they need and get out of their way. Yeah. You know, that yeah. was the other piece of it that I found, you know, man, I never, I, I can't think of a single situation in combat where an NCO didn't square me the fuck away before execution of a mission. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's, it's fucking awesome not to hear you just say that, but also that you listen to them as much as you did. Cause there's guys that don't, yeah. you know, um, did you have any, uh, any calls that you made that, that you wish you could take back or ones that went fucking horribly wrong? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, you know, a lot of them, a lot of my time was spent in the operation centers. Um, when, when our teams would get in into fights and duress and, and, you know, you're, it's kind of like, you know, Houston with NASA, you know, like you, you gotta, you gotta bring them home, you know? And, um, typically you're five steps behind when that happens. You know, when somebody calls troops in contact three times, like you're already behind and somebody's hurt or dead. And, um, the, every single one of those, um, every single one of those calls, because typically it was somebody, you know, you know, very well, you know, their kids, you've been over there for birthday parties and, um, you can hear it in their voice and, and, you know, they're, they're needing extraction or they're needing fires. And, um, you know, there were, there were times when we weren't fast enough and there were times when we, 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 we didn't get it there, um, as efficiently as we could to, as we could have, um, there were times, uh, as a task force commander, when I, we dropped ordinance, um, and the people that were killed were, were the people that never should have been killed, you know? And, um, I, I don't have regrets for, you know, men that were killed as combatants in terms of belligerence, you know, like I don't, I don't, I don't that doesn't really haunt me. What, what does haunt me is, um, you know, buddies who didn't make it out of there where I feel like I could have been faster or I could have been better for them. Do yeah. you, do you feel like, um, in those instances that they were misjudgments or it was just an inability to, to be able to, to do what what uh, you were trying to accomplish fast enough. I don't feel like there were any, as I look back on it, because I've done it a lot yeah. as I get older, um, I don't feel like there were like grievous errors, you know, or omissions. And I, and I would say it. Um, but where, you know, if you had um, anticipated a little bit more, yeah. right, um, that, that maybe you could have got that airframe there before he bled out, right? And, yeah, I mean, that, that's easy to fucking hindsight though you know i mean um to me like th there's plenty of calls i've made in in my life that if i think like oh, i could have done that better but i also know that i did the best i could with the information i had at the time you yep. know um, and, and i think that's the big difference yeah. you know if you do something yeah. out of cowardice or uh or out of malintent you know some something of that nature then that's very different but um you know, to me, it, that, that, that's my take on it, I guess. I mean, yeah. were there ever any calls that you made where, you know, when you talk about the level of utility where you felt like that was mismatched in terms of damage, collateral damage done uh, or, you know, uh, effective damage done within a, a unit where it wasn't worth what you got out of the mission for? Um, I think there were times in, well, one that, that I always look back at is like whenever we would um, – for example, the the the, the Nam Dong mission I was talking about, where we did the maneuver, the ANA maneuver up in the Aruzgan province. It was a pretty large mission, and um, it was an SF captain and myself that nominated that mission, and and we saw it as a way to get into some territory, some sanctuary that that we had never been before with the Afghan forces, and so it represented a real strategic gain 
you know, in terms of battlefield disposition. And so we nominated that whole thing. We nominated that whole target. We we were allocated howitzers and Chinooks. I mean, we had we had a friggin' armada for this task force for a sustained like twelve day operation. You know, massing against the Taliban, the Taliban massing on us. And um, but what I remember is that we had we had one uh, team that was a, a contingency or a crisis response element, a Cree, and we 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 would put them on anytime we would get a hit on you know mid level leaders. We'd put those guys on them and chase them down, and um, you know, the thing I remember about that is is putting that team on uh, this, these, these three brothers that were some pretty bad actors that had killed Marines a couple of weeks prior. And we knew that the team was going to be flying into a buzzsaw, you know. But but what I always remember is looking at the team, Alan Johnson in particular, who was killed, and just this big shitting grin on his face. That was the last memory I have of him, you know. And th- th- the fact that these operators, these magnificent warriors – would go into that fray with just because you asked them to do it. And, yeah. and you know what I mean? And with just complete exuberance and, and a can-do attitude, in some ways that haunts me, yeah. you know, because, because it, it, it was, it, I still, I can still see that. As far as the overmatch, you know, man, we overmatched everything. You know, anytime we got in a fight and we brought close air support in, yeah. you bring in an A-10, in an insurgency, you're overmatching. Yeah. And there's no way that you're going to have surgical lethality when you've got fire coming from a mosque or something like that or an ur- you know, a urban area. You're going to kill some people that probably shouldn't be killed. They, be, they, yeah. you know, they probably weren't supposed to be there or they, you know, just because of the, the profile of that weapon system, yeah. right? And, and it's as surgical as you can make it. Yeah. And it's as reduced as you can make it cool. Now you just live with it for the rest of your life because yeah. that's the reality. Yeah. I want to take a second to talk about something near and dear to my heart. And that is a staunch supporter of this podcast, which is Bub's Naturals. Uh, the hat sitting in front of me uh, here on our coffee table here in the studio belonged to Glenn Doherty. His nickname was Bub. Uh, I did two platoons with him and his childhood best friend uh, and another colleague of theirs. Uh, Sean is the best friend. TJ is their colleague. Uh, started Bub's Naturals, which is a collagen and MCT oil company uh, in Bub's or Glenn's honor. And, um, you know, for me, it's it's uh, an absolute honor to be sponsored by and working with a company that, um, you know, was started in the honor of one of my closest friends and, and a guy that I went to war with. And, uh, you know, the, the Bub's brand is not only super quality, um, you know, collagen, uh, collagen powder, as well as MCT oil powder. Um, you know, but they also give back to the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation. Uh, they donate proceeds from their product sales to the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation, which, uh, you know, to me just furthers, uh, you know, the, the mission set on veterans day, they give a hundred percent back. So, uh, I do believe it's the best collagen on the planet. Uh, I like to mix it in with uh, morning coffee the MCT oil powder, the same thing, uh, mixes in very easy. It tastes great. Uh, and it just kind of adds everything that you want to start your day off from a brain health standpoint, from a joint support, gut support, um, you know, MCT oil and collagen are, are two components, especially as, as we age, uh, that are integral components to, uh, to health. And so, uh, to be able to work with Bub's Naturals and, uh, be able to, to work with them and, and sponsor a product that, uh, number one is a high quality product. And number two is, is so near and dear to, uh, you know, to my heart and to the mic drop podcast for, for who it 
uh, was started for and what it stands for, um, you know, it's just, uh, it's an amazing, amazing place to be. So, um, it is whole 30 approved. Um, it's, uh, sport certified, so you're not uh, going to run into any problems with that. Um, and I will say that, um, you know, right now they're, they're offering, uh, 20%, <clears throat> 20% off if you go to bubsnaturals.com and, uh, use the mic drop code. So, uh, I really highly encourage you to, to try it out incorporate it into your day, day to day for joint health, for brain health, uh, for cognition, for gut health, and, uh, and to support an amazing organization that does a lot of things, uh, in Glenn Bubb's honor. So, uh, go to bubsnaturals.com. Mic drop is the code 20% off. All right, guys, as you know, I'm into uh, health and fitness, uh, and specifically how nutrition relates to it. Um, coffee has, has been a staple of mine and, and I think most people's for a long time. Um, as you know, I'm a big uh, proponent of Mudwater, which is a sponsor of this show. They have been uh, for a while now, and, and we have a great partnership. I love their product. Um, it's a phenomenal alternative to coffee. Uh, for me, you know, coffee, there's jitters, there's mold in it. Uh, you know, a lot of times it tends to, to kind of upset my stomach. Uh, but Mudwater has adaptogenic uh, mushrooms. Um, there's a fraction of the caffeine that coffee has. There's a little bit, but it's very, very little. Um, and it, it really leans on, on mushrooms and the blend of matcha and chai for kind of that sustained energy that, that continues to go and, and doesn't crash the way coffee does when, uh, when it runs out. Uh, they use lion's mane for alertness, cordyceps to support physical performance, chaga and raishi to support the immune system, turmeric for soreness and cinnamon for antioxidants. Um, I, I really enjoy that first cup of warm liquid in the morning by taking mud water instead of coffee. And I'll put uh, just a splash of, of heavy cream uh, or even some protein powder, uh, some collagen powder. Um, and I'll also throw uh, usually a couple drops of uh, stevia or uh, monk fruit vanilla to make it kind of a, a thick, normal morning coffee ritual type of uh, concoction. And uh, I got to tell you, it, it, it does wonders for me, and, and I'm really, really glad that I switched. It's been, you know, better part of a year now, uh, you know, that I've been taking that uh, and using that as part of my uh, daily morning routine, and it's fantastic. I love it. I, I can't re recommend it enough. Uh, it's 100% USDA, uh, organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher certified, uh, and they also donate to the Berkeley Center for Science of Psychedelics, which is uh, – you know, groundbreaking and leading research to help veterans with PTSD uh, and other uh, associated illnesses and, and uh, syndrome. So uh, great cause, great company, phenomenal product. If you go to Mudwater, that's M-U-D-W-T-R.com forward slash Mike to su support this show and the product uh, and use the code Mike Mud, M-I-K-E-M-U-D, all caps for 15% off. That's again, Mudwater, M-U-D-W-T-R dot com forward slash Mike. And the code is Mike Mud, M-I-K-E-M-U-D, all caps for 15% off. Go check them out. Well, I think one distinction that should be made, especially from somebody, you know, sitting in your shoes or anybody that's making that call, whether it's, you know, you or anybody in that chain of command, is that the people that are firing at you from that position, it's not like they don't know that that's the probability. Oh, 100%. So, you know, to me, like you've got to put the onus on the individual that's putting them in that position because they know they're doing it. 
You know, like you can't tell me that like there's a reason you're shooting at us from a mosque. It's because right. you know we're not supposed to shoot it. So if you walk in there and you see 30 fucking innocent civilians praying and doing, you know, going about their business, women and children, and you decide to pull the trigger at American forces from there, you're the motherfucker that's putting them in, in, in that danger. For sure. You know, yeah, for sure. And, not, and not that it doesn't still suck. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's, it's for, again, for me and, you know, so many of my peers saw 10 X more combat than I did. But for me, the combat I did see, it's shades of things. It's not like a black and white thing. It's shades of things, you know, and, and, and even the ones that are so cut and dry, um, you know, they, they still stay with you. I can imagine. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I fortunately was never in a, in a super gray area position that way. You know, I mean, every, every time we engaged anything or anybody, it was pretty fucking clear cut. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I am curious if, if I may, uh, can I ask how many men were lost under your command? Um, I was always, so on, when I was task force commander of Nam Dong, we lost one U.S. service member. Um, and then we lost, I want to say we lost four Afghan soldiers yeah. on that one. Um, and then we had uh, 10 or 12 wounded yeah. on that mission. Um, the rest of my, uh, I didn't lose anybody else under, doing task force stuff. But then when I was, the rest of my tours were as an operations officer yeah, and, um, not in command. Okay. Right. So we lost, um, I think seven on my first rotation yeah. in that battalion. Um, next rotation, I think we lost five. And then, uh, in, in my final rotation in 2010, um, doing the village stability mission, six or seven guys. Yeah. Wow. Those are pretty big numbers for, for those units, you know, but, yeah. um, so as an operations officer, I mean, what, um, I, I guess at what level did you have involvement in dealing with any of that? Putting them into the fight, you know, and, um, everything from their, their plan, their con op, everything they're going to do, you know, from the moment that they get assigned that mission, you know, you're, you're right there with them. Yeah. Resourcing them, putting that together. And then once they, once they go in, man, like you're, you're their lifeline, you know, that's it. You're their lifeline. Everything that is going to happen to them external to their mission is, is coming from you. And, and so knowing how they think what's going on, you know, spending a lot of time with the commander, with the maneuver commander and with the senior NCO going through all of their contingencies talking so that you, as fast as you can, you can anticipate what they're going to call for, what they're going to need. And, you know, and because seconds are everything, as you know, um, and a, a lot of it is, um, is battle tracking the shit out of them as they're moving, yeah. you know, and mm -hmm. then, and then getting them out of there when it's time to extract, yeah. you know, and the thing is you've got at any given time, you know, you've got, it's not uncommon. If you're, if you're running an operation center like that, you've got 15, 20 maneuver elements all out at the same time. And as many as three or four of them in contact yeah. all the time, Yeah, you know, so you're, you're, you're constantly managing contact all the time, which means you're constantly managing resources. Absolutely. That can help them all the time. And you've got almost ER doctor triage. Yeah. Yeah. And you may have, you know, like for example, you may have one, one jet on the deck, you know, and a, a B 52 inbound that's still 20 minutes out. You have three teams in contact and you're trying to figure out who gets the fighter jet. Yeah. You got to sort that. You, you literally have to figure out who's in the worst 
spot. Yeah, yeah it's tough. Yeah. Were there ever uh, operations that you gave the go-ahead on that you um, felt like that it was a mistake to, to authorize? I mean, I know it's easy to be like, well, any, any of the ones that guys were killed on, but, I mean, again, speaking to the utility component, like were any of them like, fuck, that just, what a waste, you know? I mean, because in some retro, in, in some instances or, or i would say in retrospect to a certain degree across the board it kind of feels that way given how we left and where it's at now it, yeah. like it, it's hard not to paint the entire fucking thing with a brush of what was the fucking point um but i guess you know if you individualize the uh you know risk versus reward versus what was gained by what was lost yeah it's kind of a fucking I, I, word soup no it's not i i, th I and, and what i'd like to do is maybe answer your question um, from the perspective of going back from my third tour, you know, at, in the first two tours, whenever we launched missions, whenever we, we would bring surgical precision fires in a range of ways and do a lot of damage and, and, and a lot of body count, a lot of KIAs, a lot of successful missions. And I never really, I never really thought about that deeply until around 2009 when we saw that there were more Taliban in the rural areas than when we started in 02. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you start going, well, wait a minute, you know, from a, from a basic metric of a rural insurgency, that shit's not good. Yeah. You know, so that was one. So where I started to question myself in terms of, okay, what are we doing? If we are, if this is what we've been doing for 10 years, you know, gloves off and God knows we have killed a lot of these dudes and what's, there's more of them in the rural areas than when we started. What's the ROI? What, yeah. What's the return on investment here? And then <clears throat> once we started doing village stability in 2010 and I had the ability to travel around the countryside and, and really get back to kind of old school green beret shit, sitting with elders, having conversations under mulberry trees about the war over the last 10 years, their exposure to war over the last 40 years, you know, going all the way back to the Soviets. And I started to pick up on, the level of um, impact that our counterinsurgency campaign had had on their civil society and their ability to just operate day to day, it it was like, damn, you know, we we have brought something into this thing that like I don't think we're going to recover from. Yeah. You know, we have pushed the population so far away from us. Mm -hmm. Granted, we won a lot of battles. And, you know, we brought overwhelming combat power to bear. But I'm sitting here talking to this old man who lost his nephew in a bombing raid who had, according to him, nothing to do with it. And he's never going to fucking work with us. Yeah. You know, so as an SF guy, you're going, all right, well, I'm not sure this is working, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm not sure that the applications that I, that I certainly stood in that talk and said, yep, do it. Um, brought the results that I had hoped they would. Yeah. Hard to say. It's hard for me to say that, yeah. but it's, it's true. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think, you know, people may argue or say that, that by saying that or, or even admitting to, to thinking that is that you do a disservice to the fallen. And I, I, I look at it the opposite. I think by being honest with ourselves and, and taking accountability for it is the best thing you can do. A hundred percent. And I think that a lot of the guys that I worked with and some who fell were very adamant about the same thing. They were saying the same things. Yeah. 
they were still doing their jobs and and they would roll out and do but they you know these were these were guys that saw a lot of um had done a lot of foreign internal defense around the world and they they knew and they were smart guys and, and the other thing too is i think that we did as a community special forces did look around in 09 and say this isn't working we yeah. need we need to we need to reboot here and we did and village stability operations was that and mm-hmm. it you know and it and it and it had a pretty prolific effect and then once again you had policymakers come in uh, and pull the rug on that thing yeah. after we had made promises to villagers that we were going to stay with them as long as it took yeah you know and for me that was the that was the last straw that was when i hung it up so um yeah, it's hard to say, but I think I think as a community, we we did learn in that moment, tried to adjust, and just weren't able to pull it off. Yeah. Did you notice a disparity between administrations uh, having deployed under two different ones uh, and pretty opposing spectrums of the political spectrum? I feel like Austin Powers. Let me allow <laughs> myself to introduce myself. Uh, <laughs> Did you find that there was a, a a big contrast between deploying under Bush and deploying under Obama in terms of yep. everything? I mean, morale, yep. support. Yeah, I found that um, under President Bush, there seemed to be more, um, at least perceived, um, support mm-hmm. from the administration, and and maybe that is also because we were fresh off the attacks of nine eleven and and that kind of thing. But um, it did feel like at least in our circles, as we talked about things, that there was uh, a, a level of kind of respect that went deeper. And then you, you started to see some some absence of that, I think, under, under the Obama administration. Um, but look, m- m- my sense of it is that I, I found all of the administrations, the two that I served under, and then just staying connected to the Afghan fight beyond that, all of them remarkably underwhelming. Yeah. And, and really not up to the task of leading um, a national effort to, to deal with Afghanistan in a way that you had a whole-of-government approach and, and clarity of orders and what we were there to do. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't see any administration, frankly, that should be thumping their chest right now. Yeah. So I'd like to get into that a little bit as you got out and, and still stayed pretty connected with guys that you served with and in the community as a whole, um, walk me through your, I guess, path as as you witnessed the things that have gone on. And and I'm I'm curious about all of it, not just the Afghanistan piece and and kind of that fumbling of of it, but also some of the social stuff that has crept into our military with the COVID vaccine stuff, the, you know, open transgender stuff within the military, you know, women serving in, in certain capacities that they haven't been able to, you know, things of that nature that, that seem to be pretty divisive within military groups. I'm, I'm curious to get your take on all that. Yeah, I got out in 2013 and, you know, I'll start by saying that I was retiring on my terms. I felt good about it. Still married, three kids living at home, had a contract job, you know, coming out, um, was going to write a book. So everything was, was set pretty well. Um, but I will tell you, my transition itself was terrible. It was awful. Um, within six, seven months of getting out, um, I had I had just spiraled. You know, um, everything was okay on the outside, making good money and stuff, but I just had lost purpose, lost identity. I, I felt like I was like floating four feet off the earth all the time, just just untethered. You yeah. know, um, and fell into a really, really dark place, a, a level of 
and I'd never ex- really experienced anything like that when I was on active duty. Yeah. You know, um, that was your whole identity, right? Yeah. I mean, from yeah. the time you were, yeah, it was, even before you were on active duty, that's what you wanted to be. All I wanted to be. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're not, you know, and, and I, you know, went into a level of depression is the only way I know to describe it. Um, and I just let myself go. I mean, my kids would, I, I got to, to be such a dick that like my kids, if I would walk in a room, they would just get up and leave because they didn't know what version of dad they were going to get, but it, they were pretty sure it wasn't going to be one they wanted. Yeah. You know, my wife and I were just falling apart. Um, and I started having suicidal ideations. I mean, in a, in a, in a major way to the point that I was putting the pistol in my hand. Yeah. And, um, this was within, you know, all of this within 18 months of getting out, Yeah. you know, and trying to figure out what the hell am I doing? Like what, what now? You know, I'm 40 some 41. Like, is this it? Is this my life? Like, is it over? You know? And, um, I just felt like an old piece of kit, man. And, 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 um, just, just no sense of purpose or direction. And so what was happening around me as I, as I looked at the military and everything else, I didn't even know where I stood in relation to it. And so I kind of checked out from all of that. Um, and I'll bring it back to your question though, is that what brought me back to it was was actually connecting with a couple of civilian mentors. Um, I knew there was, I knew that if I was going to survive, that I had to find a way to reconnect with my voice, and I had I, there was something I felt like I needed to do um, to share with the world, but I just didn't know what it was. And I and I found a couple of mentors. One of them was a retired football player, uh, Bo Eason, NFL player. Dude uh, blew his knee out like seven times, and on the seventh time, uh, decided that if he didn't take the TNT inside of him and do something positive, he's going to go to prison. So he became an actor, and then he became a playwright, and then he became a speaker. And I was going around to all these conferences trying to figure out what the fuck am I going to do. And I see this guy speak, and as soon as he like he was like prowling the stage, and I thought, man, that is so badass. I felt like that day I saw Mark. Yeah. And I went up to him and started talking to him and, and, and he agreed to work with me. And so for, for several years, I worked with him around storytelling, primarily just as a way to heal myself and using narrative therapy. And, and it was really helpful. And, and, and so I started doing that work with other veterans and other guys on active duty. We started a nonprofit called the hero's journey, my wife and I, and that's how I got back into the military again, was actually working along restoration lines, healing through storytelling. And, and, and in doing that, I started to get a sense of what the guys were going through with all of these different programs. And, um, you know, the one thing that I could just say, I was so glad all that shit happened after I was out, Yeah, you know, but, but, but I did see a, a, a precipitous drop in morale, um, as all of the, that, that kind of social programming started to take root. Um, but what really worried me more than anything and still does was the level of just mental health challenges that our guys high performers yeah we're going through i mean no one even my wife didn't even know until just two years ago that i'd gone through what i went through and 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 you know you're losing so many friends so fast to suicide and alcoholism it's like what the fuck is happening and you you know so so for me it was more around um getting connected back to veteran mental health yeah and seeing the impact of a 20-year war on our society on on those guys you have three sons. I do. How old were they when you got out? Let's see. Cody was um, Cody was in high school. 
Cooper was in middle school and Braden was in his last year of elementary school. So pretty formative years. How is your relationship with them now after having gone through that with them? It's really good. I mean, Cody, uh, there was a very, very low period. Um, at, at when Cody told me he was joining the army, that was, that was a, that was kind of a, a blow initially. I didn't know what to do with it. Um, but you know, he's loving it and he's really doing great. And I, you know, I, I couldn't be prouder. Um, but my relationship with all three of my boys, um, is really strong. And yeah. in fact, my middle son is in the play with me. Oh, nice. You know, and, and so we're, we're empty nesters now, Monty and I are empty nesters and, you know, I get to chase her around the house and, you know, still we travel. Do you with ever this catch speaking. her? You know, occasionally. Well, once in a while. Yeah. I think, I think she just throws me <laughs> a bone and lets sometime. me catch her. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, but the, the relationship's great and they're all, they're grown now chasing their dreams. Yeah. Um, and it, what a. What an amazing thing to see your kids chase their dreams, man. Yeah, it's, just, it's just amazing. Yeah. Um, how, how did you get through the to go from you entering a room and them just being like, fuck that, to yeah. where you have a great relationship? You know, uh, it was incremental, obviously, and it took some time. But I had to find my voice again. And by that, I mean my point of view, my agency, my purpose. I had to... I had to get back connected to that. It was just such a disconnect. It was like I was disembodied. Um, and again, for me, it was in developing uh, my story, my, my story about my life, my journey, uh, my struggle, and, and sharing that story in, with them and, and, and getting a sense of myself again and what my purpose was, where I stood in the world. Once I started to kind of reclaim that and I started to see that I was relevant, that's when I started to show back up. Yeah, you know, as dad, as a husband, um, because I just could not find my way to relevance. I could not see what relevance looked like for me. Yeah, you know, after doing what I'd done in special forces, I mean, how the hell do you even replicate that in in, in civil society? Yeah. At least I couldn't find a way that that filled my cup. Yeah, I, I think that's the case with most veterans, um, especially special operations guys, because you go through this you know, journey of self-identification that embodies the career, the job, the, and yeah. there's such a mystique and, and mythical-like yeah. legend status that's associated with special operators, you know. And, and let's be honest, like, you know, when you're in uniform and, and pick one, you know, yeah. fucking Green Beret, Ranger, SEAL, whatever, and you go to any military base, like, you, you're regard, it, it's the, on the same level of rarity as NFL players or rock stars. Yeah. And you get treated that way, yeah. you know. And so to go from where where not just in a in a society that that puts warriors on a pedestal, but now you're you're on a pedestal with on within that pedestal, yeah. And and you go from that to to basically fucking nobody, yeah. You know, and and in some cases, you know, yours twenty three fucking years of being the the man to being like, who the fuck are you? Exactly. You know, but I think that's the case with all guys. And, and it's going to vary a little bit depending on how long you did it, what you did, and now what you're doing. And that's something that I talk uh, with a lot of guys about is, you know, to your, to your point, and, and I couldn't agree more, is, is purpose. Yeah. You know, like if you, if you don't have that, and it doesn't matter what it is, you know, but if you don't have that, that's how you're going to feel. You you're know? right. And, you're right, man. And it's crucial. You know, there's a, there's a lot of good science out there nowadays that um, recent – the ability to measure brain activity and, and derive certain things from it, uh, it in terms of purpose, human connection. But, you know, one of the things that we know is that humans, more than any other critter, 
are meaning seeking and meaning assigning. We assign meaning to everything we do, you know, and it, 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 it literally fi- it figures into every action we take. At, at a semi-conscious level, we're constantly assigning and seeking and assigning meaning to everything. And then all of a sudden, if you can't make meaning out of a lived experience, you're in trouble. Yeah. Like you're in trouble at a biological level. And then you add to it the guilt, the TBIs, the PTS, the various, you know, corrosive elements of just combat. And throw some booze and pain pills. You on got it. Of it. Yeah. It's a devil's cocktail. Yeah. And uh, that's what I think we're up against right now. I think that we're, you know, we're on the front end of something that um, is frankly more diabolical than it has been at any point in modern history. And uh, it's nobody's coming. Like we're going to have to, we're going to have to, we're going to have to step into this ourselves with our brothers and sisters and figure this one out, I think. Yeah. So I started dipping when I was in high school. Um, I started with pouches as most kids do uh, ultimately in the military. I dipped the entire time I was there. A lot of us did. Um, you know, one of the things about dipping is that it, it kind of turns into a, a ritual where, it, you know, it's really part of uh, part of the culture almost uh, oftentimes in the military and in a lot of fields that uh, that are, are that way. And, and uh, one of the things, obviously, you know, real real tobacco uh, isn't the best for you. Um, but because of that ritual being such a, an ingrained part of that culture, it's something that a lot of times we miss. And even when I got out of the Navy, uh, I still dipped for a number of years. Uh, I wish that I had had this product, Black Buffalo. It's a, a tobacco-free alternative uh, that I can tell you it looks, smells, tastes, uh, feels everything like the real thing, uh, but there is no tobacco in it. And uh, it's a phenomenal product. Uh, they have mint, wintergreen, blood orange, uh, straight peach. Um, what's cool is they also, they, they've got, um, the, the straight as far as the, the cut, uh, they've got long cut, they've got pouches. Uh, so it's really kind of a, a one-stop shop for tobacco free alternatives that way. Uh, but they also have a zero, uh, version, which has absolutely no nicotine. So you can get it with nicotine if you want the nicotine, uh, or you can get it without nicotine if, if you don't, uh, it's all food grade ingredients. Um, green green cabbage essentially uh, as well as pharmaceutical grade nicotine if that's the the option that you choose uh, but it's just a, a an awesome company it's veteran started uh, and they're big supporters of the mic drop podcast uh, and it's a product that uh, that i stand behind and and uh, absolutely endorse it, it it's a great great crew of guys what's really cool about uh, black buffalo is that it's uh you know it's the look the feel the smell the taste the texture, everything the same as, as regular dip. And, uh, you know, to me, that's, that's the, the big thing missing from all, all and any other alternatives, little pouches of nicotine or, uh, any of the other stuff that doesn't use a, um, a product that, that really has that same, same feel. It, it doesn't feel like you're actually dipping it. So, uh, black Buffalo has done a, a masterful job at creating that same experience. Uh, the flavors are all on point. Uh, the long cut and the pouches are, are both just like the the real thing. And again, the fact that you can you can get it with nicotine if you want, uh, or you can get it completely nicotine free if you want. So again, if you're 21 years or older uh, and you dip and you want uh, that tobacco free alternative, go to blackbuffalo.com and the code is Mike Drop for 20% off. So safe to say, politic or politics or politically in the military, 
the COVID vaccine stuff, the transgender stuff, the social experiment, you're not a fan of any of that? I'm not. I'm not. I, I don't think, you know, I've never believed in, in social engineering in, in, in the military, particularly in the elite forces or combat arms. I'm not a fan of it. Um, but, you know, I have to say that having um, a son in the military and, and um, I, I try not to talk much about what he does, but, but out of respect for his work, but, but just having met a lot of his peers and how they think about, you know, a lot of them don't have, at least that I've met, don't have the level of issue with it that you and I do, you know? So I try to just say, okay, I'm not in anymore. I'm not there. You know, I don't have the context they have. So, you know, maybe some of this stuff is not as bad or I, I don't know. Like, yeah. I just don't know, you know, and I don't want to try to like be that guy that talks about back when it was hard and shit. You know, I just, yeah. I try to, I try to, I try to just stay level about that, but it's hard for me because the bulk of what you just talked about, it just, it, it just doesn't land with me. And yeah. I, and I, and I, and I don't see it. Uh, I don't see it working yeah. in the kind of um, work that those units have to do. Yeah. I agree completely with everything you just said. What I will say is that, you know, time will tell. I mean, ultimately, I think to your point, both of us, neither of us are in, yeah. you know, neither of us have any, any say other than our fucking opinion, which is, doesn't mean much at this point right. other than to, you know, the, the people listening. Um, but what I will say is that, you know, time will tell in terms of, and what I will say is that like, obviously I'm, I'm not the policymaker. I, I don't drive the decision, but I, I'm curious to see in, in a few years, how effective as a war fighting force we're going to be where that is the priority. And that's the ultimate ROI, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean that's that, how you do. That's the litmus, you know, for like, sure. You, you know, know, so that's the ultimate metric. And, 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 and the sad part about that is, is that's a back end metric that you yeah. measure after the fact. Yeah. And it's too, and if it's wrong, then you're fucking too you're late. Fucked. Yeah. So, I mean, what I will say is that like, if 10 years from now we can still go just hand anybody their fucking ass, I'll sit here and say, okay, you know what? I was wrong or, or however you want to run it, fucking have at it. Cause clearly you guys know better than me what the fuck you're doing. hundred percent. I've yeah. said that about uh, even just straight up direct action in Iraq, Afghanistan and Syria. I'm like, if you can show me unequivocally that just turning the whole place into a parking lot, you know, after attack like nine 11 is the better way to go. I'm all ears. Yeah. I'm all ears, but I, you know, I, I don't necessarily see that. Like I don't see the, the evidence to that. Yeah. And I think, like you said, a lot of these experiments, the only way we're going to know, unfortunately, is as the smoke clears on the battlefield. Yeah. And, and, and then you're stuck with what you got. Yeah. And, and to me, just from a, from a society, if you, if you look at it from a, a hierarchy standpoint or, or level of importance, it's like, why not try that in sports, in hobby groups, in you know, things that don't fucking matter? Yeah. By comparison, why don't you try it there first? Right. You know, yeah. sports being, you know, sports and combatives, boxing, wrestling, MMA, fucking football, baseball, basketball, soccer. Why, why don't you mix that shit in there first? Yeah. yeah. Even the little bit that's been done has been pretty apparent what the disparity is. Agreed. Yeah. You yeah. know, so to think that that's somehow magically not going to transfer over into when your fucking life is on the line to me seems asinine. I mean, it's, it seems bordering on fucking insane. Yeah, especially if you don't have any skin in the game. Yeah. You know, when you're when you're doing that. And, um, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to get your thoughts on Ukraine. Huh. Yeah. 
Uh, I was talking to somebody about that the other day. You know, I, it's one of those, I, I never did any work. Did you, did you ever do any mm. work in Eastern Europe? No. Yeah, I didn't either. And, and so, you know, once again, I always try to lead with that because I'm not as deep on it as a lot of, you know, one of the things that astounds me, Mike, about this is the number of veterans who are involved in this shit. Oh, I know. You know, I think we are at a, we are at a very, very weird place, um, in national security. And I think it started with the collapse in Afghanistan where you had these veterans groups stand up. But when Ukraine popped off, you had groups stand up even faster because yeah. they were already kind of self-organized. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you've got right now former special operators over in Ukraine doing FID. Yeah. You know, um, and they are not part of the Def Department of Defense apparatus. Yeah. You know, they are, they are, they are third parties out, out there doing that. So that's one thing that just right off the top of my head strikes me as really different is that how we're approaching this as a nation, it is so disparate right now. I mean, I, we are definitely not unified in how we see the Ukraine problem. I don't think the unit administration is coherent in how they see it. Um, I think, you know, as I look at the problem, um, there's, there's part of me that thinks, man, this is just straight up genocide and it needs to be dealt with. It's like a humanitarian disaster. This guy should not be allowed to get away with this. Plus it puts all of Europe at risk. But then on the other hand, I'm, I'm thinking, fuck, we couldn't even properly exit a 20 year war. We're going to turn the page and start another one in Eastern Europe with a friggin' superpower. Yeah. A nuclear superpower. Yeah. yeah. You know? And, and so I kind of struggle to frame it. Yeah. I really do. I struggle to, to kind of get uh, moral clarity on it. Yeah. And, and I think it's because I'm still reeling from Afghanistan. Yeah. And I've even told buddies of mine who, who went right from the Afghan conflict into the Afghanistan or the Ukraine saying, hey, let's get some, you know, I'm, I, I told them, I said, I, I don't think I can. I don't think I can even process this. I'm still trying to figure out how we left our commandos on the side of the road. Yeah. You know, I, I just can't get my head around another war in Ukraine when we left this one so badly. Yeah, and it's still a fucking mess. Like it's we, still we haven't a mess. unfucked, you know, the, no. the mess that that is. No, I, I agree. I mean, I, to me, I think there's a few things to dissect there. There's two major, major components. One is the, the veteran population and, and the, the amount or, or volume that's involved. And I'll, I'll get into that second to kind of the broader scope, the, the 30,000 foot view of, of what you were just talking about. I think the biggest, um, trouble I have and I think and, and where most people are scratching their heads on not really sure what fucking side of the fence to fall on is is the the lack of of accountability and and yeah. transparency as it relates to how much money is being sent there where it's going how it's being accounted for i.e. it's not you know n not auditing it not having any proof of, of of what's happening with it when the state of affairs is such that it is in the United States um, and when you combine that with a hyper corrupt um, government there there in existence now yeah. and, and all of these different very apparent and troubling frankly um, connections between our government and China and Ukraine and you know frankly fucking money laundering and and the, the war machine effort that the amount of money that's made off of, right. of what's being sent there and who's benefiting from it and all that stuff you know, it, it's really, really difficult to just blindly stand behind yeah. that, that cause and that flag when there's so many fucking things that are like, if it was a relationship, you know, red flags flying up that you're like, wait, well, wait, hey, hang on a second. 
Like that, that doesn't fucking pass the sniff test. Like what's the fucking deal with, you know, and then there's 30 different things that you're like, well, hang on. Yeah. And, and nobody will give you a straight fucking answer. You can't answer. get a straight answer. And it's, and it's the same standard. Like, well, if you believe in fuck, like they, they make it and, and boil it or reduce it down to such a, a bumper sticker slogan, yeah. easily digestible fucking bullet point statement of, you know, wave the flag. And if you're, you know, you're either fucking with us or you're a fucking Nazi, like, you know, and it's just like, well, it's really not that fucking simple. It's not, especially when you think about what we've been through for the last 20 years. Yeah. You know, you know I mean, it's not like we haven't been exposed deeply yeah. to some version of this in yeah. Southwest Asia and in the Middle East. Yeah. And again, we pretty much gave our youth over to that. Yeah. Right. And, and, and now you're, you're asking us to buy into something that I frankly don't understand it. Yeah. I, I like, I don't feel I have a good picture yeah. of what's really happening at all. Yeah. You know, it's, it's filtered in so many different ways with so many different agendas. Yeah. That I can't truly, and I'm usually pretty good at making sense out of things. Yeah. I can't make sense of yeah. it. And, and to me, like, I'm not opposed at all right. to helping, but similarly to you, like, but not having no fucking clue as to, as to how it's really working. Like, if you can make me understand, I'm going to be much more likely to either be behind it or against it. But, you know, when, when you play this fucking shell game, like, that inherently makes me suspicious of, of all of it. You know, and, and to me, like if I'm in your shoes, you meaning, you know, the, the puppet masters that are sending money there, pulling the strings and, and making these high level decisions. If I'm you and, and I want my support, dude, I will do whatever the fuck it takes to make sure that you understand yeah. so that I have it. Yeah. You know, because by treating me like I'm five and it's well because I'm your parent and I fucking told you so. It's like you know, fooling me with Santa Claus. Like yeah. I'm not buying it, you know. Like and yeah. you're and you're doing a a less than piss poor job of helping anybody or making them understand what the fuck is really going on. So that's kind of the you know the macro view on the on the more micro side of of why I you know my theory as to you know the the veteran population and, and why it's so big. I really think kind of going back to what we were talking about that lack of purpose and yeah. And kind of being in a fucking sailboat drifting at sea once you get out. I mean, you've got a generation of, of war fighters who have spent their entire adult lives yeah. fighting, you yeah. know. And, and so now when that's gone, it's like, well, fuck me. Now what? What do I do? But, you know, and, and I don't mean this as a slight at all. So anybody listening that, that is in, in that position, I I'm going to apologize in advance for uh, for the correlation I'm going to make. But I see a similar pattern in, in behavior of, of addicts in that, you know, the adrenaline and, and the feeling and the rush and the sense of purpose and, and that euphoria, you know, you know, and there's plenty of science behind the dopamine and, and serotonin that that's involved in the euphoria and, and the, and the feelings that, that people get in these high rush environments and they get essentially addicted to it is that that same pattern of behavior of, of abandoning everything that's worthwhile in your life to, to maintain something that's giving you that feeling. I mean, the, the same way meth or opioids or fucking alcohol or, or anything grabs you by the balls and, and will, will allow you and make you just shit can every fucking relationship you have in your life, everything yeah. good you have in your life to be able to, to, to continue to, to, to feel that same way. And I think that, I think that there is a, a component of that that exists in, uh, in some of that. I could be totally fucking wrong. But to me, I, I don't like. I'd love for somebody to say, "No, you are totally fucking wrong," and, and here's why. 
it's happening at this level. And, and, and if anybody's out there, feel free to post in the fucking YouTube comments to say, no, I think you're wrong. And here's why I'm, I'm happy to listen. And if I'm wrong, I will be the first motherfucker to, uh, to, to sit here and say, Hey, I was wrong. Somebody opened my eyes and I, and it completely changed my perspective, but that's, that's how I see it. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't disagree. I think all of us, um, coming out of this, particularly the special ops world, I think first responders deal with some version of this where, you know, um, it is such a radical, it's like changing planets. Yeah. You know, and and in many cases, the 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 thought of 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 going to that new planet, going to that new society, and trying to figure that shit out is scarier than any aspect yeah. of of combat, and um, it's just so unknown. Yeah. You know, and 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 frankly, unattractive. Yeah. In a lot of ways, you know, and and so I do think it it certainly contributes to that. Um, I I, I also wonder with the amount of again the Dunkirk-like volunteerism that is happening. Um, I mean, I think we are rapidly approaching a point where this private-public partnership that has manifested over these last two conflicts, we're going to have to start talking about this. We're going to have to figure out how to do this because there are a whole generation of special operators, for example, who are very capable and, and have relationships that are insane mm-hmm. and, and, and the ability to get shit done that on the private side is really impressive. Yeah. So I, I think there's some goodness in it, but right now, if you, if you look at it for the most part, the, the institutional leaders in our federal government, they dismiss out of hand the competency and capability of these veterans and what they're doing. And in, again, in some cases it is on the edge. Yeah. And we've got to figure out like what what it needs to look like. Yeah. But it's not going away. No, it's not. And you know, my advice to anybody out there that, that feels that way, uh, and, and you see, you know, loads of examples of of combat veterans or, or just veterans in general, and, and and that's you know, some of them are special operations, a lot of them, plenty of them are not. You know, but to me, like there there's a certain component of of if you're in that kind of lane. No, nothing gives you more purpose than starting your own gig, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's why I think you see so many veteran entrepreneurs that are just fucking crushing it, yep. you know, b- because they've taken yep. that, that purpose that, that they need to have and they've dumped it into themselves. And, and I mean, that, that's what I did. And that's why, you know, thankfully, gratefully, what, what have you, I, I never had a, a sliver of, of that, transitional period that was dark for me because I, I went right into going all the fuck in on myself. Yeah. But I, but I believed in me. I believed in what I was doing and I still do. And, it, and it's something that I'm passionate about. And I think, you know, for, for anybody that's in that kind of sailboat scenario is that you've got to find your why yeah. and then just run it into the fucking ground with everything you have, Yeah, you know, and, and it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, it could be fucking, crocheting doilies for fucking grandmother's couches if that's what floats your boat but whatever it is like find that 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 every morning when you get up you're like motherfucker i get to do this today and 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 whatever that is you go do it and you and you blow it out of the fucking water i think spending some time thinking about that before you get out if you can you know that's that's something that i wish i had done um and i think now that is one of the things that i'm seeing to some degree in the military there are at least some programs that allow war fighters to actually start to do what you just said before they take that uniform off, whether that's interning somewhere um, or, you know, or getting, or 
just getting some time yeah. uh, to dig into that. But but I agree with you. I, I think that um, getting clear on your purpose and for me, it it was it was a it was kind of a long thing. It wasn't epiphanal for me um, until I I saw Bo speak, and then I thought that's it, yeah. I, and I went all in for that. Um, but just doing the movement and the reps to try to figure it out as early as you can, um, it's, it's definitely worth benefit. it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, what haven't we talked about? What haven't I asked you that I should? Um, you know, I think the only thing that that we've hit at it is um, I, I do believe that one of the things that we can do as a veteran community um, and and civil, we're going to need civilians too is t- is to really address um, some of the moral injuries and mental health issues that have come out of this very very long war, and not just assume that they're going to go away or that our guys are going to just you know process it and move on. Um, I think there's a lot of good work that can be done at a community level, um, whether you have a nonprofit or not, to uh, to address this. And one of the things that we're doing um, is through storytelling and and is our play. You know, last out elegy of a green beret, and, and it's um, it's an all veteran cast uh, and military family members, and um, it's 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 about the Afghan war, but more importantly, it's about it's storytelling from the stage by those who lived it. Um, about a special operator NCO and his family and what the impact of that long war had on all of them. What, you know. what is the key to storytelling? What makes a good story? Struggle. Struggle is, is you know, there are, you know, every story must have a character. Um, it must have goals. The, char- the, goal, the character must have goals. And there must be struggle between the character and those goals. Do you break it down all the way down, like to where it's very meticulously scientific, like a, a nutshell technique kind of yep. uh, formality I, to I, it? I believe there's an art and a science to storytelling, right? And and all of us are storytellers. In fact, our, your brain and my brain is a metaphorical pattern matching organ. So the brain actually makes sense of the world through story. It tells itself a story every second of every day, moment by moment, scene by scene. So you're living a story every moment. Um, and we're all instinctive storytellers. You know, you put a beer in our hands, we can tell a story, right? But what I believe, particularly veterans and military family members and first responders, we have been gifted um, a rucksack full of scars mm-hmm. inside and outside that we can repurpose into the service of others through stories. And that's actually how humans have evolved socially is through the power of storytelling to overcome obstacles, to, you know, to deal with things. I mean, if you think about like what you do, I mean, you're, you're storytelling all the time. You, you know, you are a storyteller and putting story into what we do at the epicenter of what we do. Um, it, it, it basically creates an environment where the other party can locate themselves in your story and make meaning out of their own lived experience through your story. Um, And so for veterans in particular, I think it's a pretty exciting thing because it's a way for us to heal ourselves. There's there's evidence uh, backed studies that show that stories heal the brain, but there's also that that's the best way to bridge that civil military gap we were talking about. Yeah. You know, because if I'm, if I'm talking about the, um, the things that I went through, losing friends in combat and decisions that I made and blaming myself or whatever it is. But there's people who have never served a day in the military that are going to locate themselves in some version of that. Yeah. You know, it's universal. Um, 
and that's for, for me has been the coolest thing is that that when you can connect people or or show people a process to design and deliver their story for real impact, uh, man, it's off to the races. Yeah. Amen. I love it. I, I love what you're doing. Um, so Task Force Pineapple is is the nonprofit or the other or you got two of them, right? Yeah, two nonprofits. Uh, Operation Pineapple Express is the book that that chronicles uh, what a group of veterans, among many other groups, did to, to get about 1,000 Afghans out of country, uh, mostly commandos and special forces. Um, it's also on Audible. I read it myself. There's like 18 characters in it. That it's, oh, nice. uh, it's a pretty cool listen. You use different voices and all that? Yep, but yeah. I didn't do accents. I just did different uh, tonality. Yeah. But uh, it was kind of tough to keep up with when you get to about page 200. You Fuck, know? I can imagine. I, I wouldn't be able to keep track of it. Yeah, you should them. give it a listen. It, 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 it moves like a movie, and, and, the, and the, the audible version is really cool. Um, but so as a result of that, we founded uh, a, a, a nonprofit relief fund called Operation Pineapple Express Relief. And what it's for really is to, it's just, a, it's, a, it's a slush fund for Afghans in duress because we've got Afghan commandos that are still over there that need food. We've got guys over here whose families are stuck over there. Um, and so we, we've got this relief fund that we can push money out for food drops, medical supplies, and things like that to help keep them alive through the winter until they can join the resistance or get their ass over here or whatever. So that's that nonprofit. And then our, our other one, our big one, is the hero's journey, and that's our storytelling nonprofit. Um, it uh, has the play Last Out that travels around the country with Gary Sinise, and then we run storytelling workshops around the country for Gold Star families, veterans, first responders, and we work with them on how to develop their story, and then how to tell it in a job interview from the stage. Um, talk to your kid about PTS using narrative as yeah. a way to bridge. Yeah, that's awesome. The uh, last out, is there a schedule for where it's going to be? And all sure that? is. If you go to lastoutplay.com, um, our next performance is in San Diego, nice. uh, May 5 and 6 at the Escondido Theater. Um, but yeah, we're going to be touring with Gary for about six months. It's yeah. also on Gary's site, and then we're going to keep going with it. My, 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 my goal is I'd love to see it go off Broadway. Yeah, yeah that's cool as hell. Uh, where can everybody find you as kind of a hub to keep track of all the things that you're, you've got going on? You know, we finally got everything consolidated under scottman.com yeah. and that's worked, that's worked a lot better. And so if you're interested in any of the stuff we talked about today around human connection or the play or uh, veteran storytelling, uh, you can find it all right there. Yeah. Amen. Well, Scott, Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, uh, Scott's better. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear you. Uh, brilliant conversation, man. It's been awesome having you here Thanks, and, and really enjoyable for me to to be able to ask you a lot of things that, uh, that I've been curious about, uh, you know, from a, a higher uh, echelon officer's standpoint in, in Afghanistan and our country and military, and uh, it did, certainly did not disappoint. So I, I really appreciate you taking the Thank time you, to come Mike. here. Thanks for yeah. what you do for our guys, man. Oh, I mean, it's an honor for, for sure. Uh, in keeping in tradition with uh, all mic drop guests, we, uh, we do offer a, a parting gift now. Oh, man. A couple of them, actually, thanks to Champion, Troy Silver, and uh, John Johnston out in California. So uh, on the top there, you go ahead and grab it. I can't reach any further. Uh, Got the standard challenge coin with the mic drop logo and then uh, the Team Dog logo on the back. And then in the box is also for you, which hopefully resonates being from... uh, Oh, my God. From North Carolina. Hell, yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. Do you know what? Um, If it's okay with you... Uh, in, to the camera or... in the play, yeah. uh, the one prop we have in the play is the wall of honor. Oh, no shit. And uh, it's a wall of, of different contributions from families of the fallen, gold star oh. families, veterans from Vietnam, 
but the but the whole thing is populated with all of these cool tokens. And this will display right, oh, uh, proudly on the wall of honor as yeah. we tour the country. That's an I will put it on there myself. That's a huge honor. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, man. Thank I, you. I know, I know John will appreciate that. Absolutely. Too, so thank you very much. And uh, again, thanks for coming. Thanks, Mike. To you guys, uh, I'm not even going to say I hope you enjoyed it. I know you enjoyed it because if you didn't, you're going to choke yourself. And uh, I do appreciate the support. Uh, thank you for turn, tuning in show after show to be able to bring amazing got, <clears throat> guests like Scott on. And uh, until next time, this is Mike Drop. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.